0: Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we continue our study through Romans, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon entitled, Lamenting Remaining Sin. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, as we look through verses 14 through 25.
1: entering a new section again this morning. Uh, While you're turning there, um, one of the things that I did mention a couple weeks ago is uh, this morning will be the last of the live streams that we do, at least for this season. It's not out of the question we wouldn't do it again. I hope we never ever need to again, but it's the last of this season. Yeah, the tech guys just really cheered back there silently, Um, but uh, (laughs) we all thank you very much. We're going to continue uploading the messages on the podcast and such, so if you are joining us on live stream and where you are you just cannot continue or don't have a church to go to because of things shut down where you are there will be a way uh, to continue supplementing your faith in that way Romans 7 beginning in verse 14 we'll read the text and then ask for God's help so please begin reading with me in verse 14 For we know that the law is spiritual but I am a flesh Sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law Oh, merciful God, come to us, uh, your people, um, come to all of us gathered here, oh God, and please, we pray, give us help. Give us help to understand, give us help to have eyes that are enabled by your grace to see, a heart that is um, opened, uh, a neck that is no longer stiffened against you, but Lord, pliable bowing ourselves down and willing to receive your word. Give us ears to hear, O oh God, give us your mercy. Father, please send us your spirit, do the miracle, do the work in the heavenly realm that uh, we need for you to give us the ability to comprehend and then to be transformed by your word. Father, we pray that we would be enabled to intellectually understand your word, but Lord, we know if it stops there, then we are still unchanged. We ask, oh God, for in comprehending with the mind to go deeper and be transformed. I I ask God that you protect this time. Please bless this time of worship, oh God. Have mercy on me. Lord, give me grace to be able to, to teach and feed. And I pray we will all feed on the word and Lord, your purposes will be accomplished. Lord, we beg that someone would be saved. Father, I pray for multiple to be born again in this time. I pray, God, with amongst those gathered, if there's any here that has not yet turned to Christ, that today would be that day that they enter your kingdom. I pray, God, those joining on live stream, uh, Father, that someone would be converted in this time. But I pray all of us will be changed and affected. So please work, O oh God, have mercy and bless. And we pray these things through Christ. Amen. Uh, Several decades ago now, one of these uh, late night comedy shows uh, did a sketch that uh, became extremely popular. You know, Hollywood once a decade can do something that might be helpful in some way. Um, A woman walked into a psychologist's office. Psychologist was played by Bob Newhart, if you know who that was. And she walks in and they greet, and he begins to explain to her that our session is only going to take five minutes. Five minutes, I will have you fixed, get you out the door on your way. Uh, He tells her that she is overjoyed, thrilled. Uh, This problem that I have been having, these miseries are finally going to be solved in all of this. Finally. So the psychologist says, okay, five minutes, go tell me your problem. She goes, uh, uh, okay, well, um, I, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. I think about it and I panic. My life is miserable. I, I think about it every day and then I become miserable as I think about it. And they have a little humorous banter back and forth about it. And finally, the psychologist looks at her and says, Oh, okay, I'm going to give you two words, two words that I want you to take out of this office. I want you to take them with you and incorporate into your life. She is excited, she takes out her notebook and pen, ready to write down these two life-changing words from this brilliant man. He says, are you ready? She nods, embraces herself, and he looks at her calmly, but then screams, stop it. (laughs) She's taken aback. Stop it? Yes, stop it. S-T-O-P, new word, I-T, stop it, she says. Okay, what you're telling me is stop it. She go back and forth. She begins to say, I don't see how I can just stop it. This has been with me my whole life. This is this real battle. He stops and says, Oh no, no, no. We, we don't we don't get into any of that stuff. Just stop it. She continues to bring up other issues and problems, slaveries from her life, and each time he says, simply just stop it. Here's my question. Why do we find that humorous? I'm glad you laughed at the joke, by the way. Why do we find that a humorous thing? Because let me ask you, is it not true? Would this not be the fix? So if it really would be a fix, why doesn't it work? We could mention all kinds of sins, slaveries, fears, anxieties, men addicted to pornography, alcoholism, drugs, fear, worry, anger, on and all. All of them could be fixed with two simple words. Stop it. And by the way, well, um, side note, if you've been a Christian um, for some number of years and you have ever opened up and been transparent about your sins, struggles, particular temptations to you, at some point... Somebody probably with a smug look on their face gave you that exact prescription and uh, maybe even said, I don't know why you have a problem with this. I don't have a problem with this and gave you that exactly right there. We agree that it would work. So if the answer is that easy, then why isn't it sufficient? It doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Now, just so that we understand on another day and we will come to another day, when we come to Romans eight and we talk about the practical battle of how do we beat sin? How do we battle sin on a daily basis? We will deal with that one of the ways that we battle sin is by growing in self control, growing in the ability to tell our flesh, no bite our tongue so that we don't say things. But we recognize that like Galatians five shows that even that the ability to grow in self-control as a Christian is a grace that comes by the Holy Spirit working in us. Just say no in human strength is inadequate. But why doesn't it work? Because of what we have seen and are seeing the book of Romans show us. We'll start here. Before we turned to Christ, so I speak to you who in the room who are born again, justified Christians. Before we turned to Christ, while we were in the flesh, while we were under the power of the law, we were enslaved to sin, we were under the power of sin, the dominion of sin, we were under the law and we saw Romans seven say that in that state, my rebellious heart wanted to break the law of God simply because somebody was telling me what to do let me, let me ask you this now question, or Christian, but what about now? That's where we were before we turned to Christ, but now Christian, what about now? The passage we enter this morning is Paul speaking on behalf of all Christians, lamenting, groaning in aggravation over the ways that we still stumble. The influence that sin still has on us even after justification. So listen Christian, things have changed at justification. Big things have changed. We saw all kinds of legal, technical things that have changed. We are now alive in union with Christ. There are practical things that have changed. Real change has come but We are not yet totally free from sin's influence and the battle that we fight in this. We've seen Romans teach us that at justification, everything changes. Your eternity changes at the moment of justification. If you've not been with us as we've studied through Romans, when I use that word justification, if that sounds strange to you, that is one of the words, one of the numerous words that the Bible uses to describe the moment that everything changes with your relationship with God, that you become right with God. You and I are sinners, even from the womb. It's in our very nature. We live in a cursed world. You are descended from Adam. We break God's law in hundreds of ways and we're gonna do it thousands of times in this life. We all act on it. We all break God's law and contrary to what everybody wants to believe, you're gonna stand before the Lord Jesus. You're gonna give an account for your life Jesus says that even things like giving cups of water, even careless words, that's how precise, that's how detailed the day of judgment will be. Thoughts, intentions of the heart will come up on that day and his standard for our lives is absolute righteousness. Absolute righteousness. That is what is demanded of you, complete goodness. And though you might think of yourself as good, I want to say something that might be a little hard, but I ask you to receive it. If you think of yourself good, here is one thing that I know. You do not read the Bible. Because over and over again in the word of God, what we are shown is we are shown who God is. We're shown the standard of what true, absolute righteousness is. And again and again, as we read the word, we see how far short we fall of that standard that God has given us. You are not good enough to be right with God. You are not good enough for his perfect kingdom of heaven. And though it is a hard pill to swallow, he says, you and I deserve wrath in hell for all of eternity. And if God had done nothing to remedy that, you and I would live a brief life here. We would die. We would stand before the Lord, face judgment for all of eternity, and God would still be good. But in mercy, the great grace of God, what the Bible calls the good news, the gospel is how God accomplished a way to bring sinners to be right with him. And that way is in his son. That message is the gospel. All of the Bible is about the gospel in some way. All showing different aspects of what the gospel is. How God is doing this work to save souls for himself. The book of Romans, specifically what it focuses in on is showing the many legal and technical things that had to happen in order for God to save souls. Because God is unwilling to do anything that is unrighteous. So God's law says that you deserve wrath. How is it that you can escape from that and God still be good? That is the book of Romans showing us what God did to accomplish salvation in a just and righteous way. Jesus paid the justice price of sins, rose from the dead, so that now if you will receive Christ by faith, if you will respond to him in this way that the Bible tells us by embracing him in truth, submitting to him in trust, you will be justified, counted, not guilty, declared, not guilty, pardoned, forgiven, adopted as a child and hundreds and hundreds of graces. The book of Romans so far in chapters one through seven that we studied thus far has listed off, I don't know, maybe 20 amazing blessings, gifts, graces that have come to us in Christ. Even the best ones we've not even really seen yet in Romans chapter eight is gonna talk about the best of ones that we have. But another major section of this book, we've seen justification. Another major section encompassing about three chapters, which is six, seven, and most of eight is that once you are made right with God, once you are justified, we enter something. We enter this process that we've been talking about now, this process that the Bible calls sanctification, a process of growing in holiness. You have become the project of God and he is at work on his people to transform us, renew us, make us more obedient. We've been learning all kinds of things that happened at justification that have enabled us to practically now grow in obedience. And so what we're ready for now, all that was recap. What we're ready for now is another incredibly important installment in us understanding our sanctification. And that is that Paul, a mature, godly follower of Christ, probably at a level of sanctification that you and I will never reach, probably even as an apostle of Christ, laments. He cries out in groaning, aggravation, frustration over the sin that still remained in him, even as a justified Christian who had been made right with God. And so, of course, that instructs you and I, this section, this lament, this is incredibly important. It's incredibly important. You know, for one, it it instructs us in a lot of ways, like, you know, if you were to read chapters five, six, and seven, and let's pretend for a second we didn't have this section. You read five, six, and the first part of seven, and and what have we seen? We've seen all these things that we have been um, freed from slavery to sin. We are now slaves of Christ. We've been made righteous with Christ. We are now alive in union with Christ. We're, We're dead to sin, we were told, legally. You go through all of these things. If we were to read all of that and not have this section, it would be possible to look at my life and then go... Man, I sure don't look like somebody who's totally dead to sin. To read all of that, about how Christ has freed us and brought us to be spirit-filled. We serve in newness of the spirit. It's all positive, upbeat, sounds really optimistic. And then I look at me and look and see, man, how can I even be a Christian? I still lust, I still have anger, I still say dumb stuff all the time, still do dumb stuff on a really regular basis. How can I even be a Christian? (laughs) And then Paul goes, I hate what I do. Wretched man that I am. And we go, thank God, (laughs) thank God I'm not the only one. This This is an incredibly important thing for us to see what sanctification and life as a justified Christian is actually going to be like? What is it actually going to be like? But it is also critical because, listen, listen, we just have to know our sin. Horrible things happen when we don't understand our sin. Romans has been teaching us a lot about sin in general. But what I also mean is you, awkward eye contact with everybody, you. You and me, we got to know our individual sin. And horrible things happen when we don't. Listen, marriages are destroyed from ignorance to sin and spiritual pride. Families are ruined by spiritual pride. When we don't know our sin and when we when we think of ourselves as up here I've arrived, dangerous things happen. We need this passage uh, where Paul opens up and his transparency and humility. Now, still introductory material, and I know this is longer introduction, but every time we start a new section, we need to spend a little bit more time on it. Um, This passage is controversial. In this. Throughout the history of the church, all the way back to Augustine, by the way, Augustine actually changed his mind on this passage. Um, there have been some who interpreted this passage, what I will call oddly, okay, in that they take this passage as Paul figuratively speaking as an unbeliever rather than as I've just explained to you as a believer who is still struggling so you know what those who hold to to that view is is what Paul is doing is he's talking about himself as he was before he was a Christian okay um, but the majority of the church, the vast majority of the Bible teachers that you and I would respect, The MacArthur's, the Pipers, the Reformers and such, they have taken this in the most straightforward reading that Paul speaks as a justified Christian because he speaks in the present tense. So even though this might seem a little bit academic, okay, I do think taking time for things, let let me take just like two, three minutes here and argue, okay, this is teaching us how to deal with Controversial, difficult passages of the Bible. Let me argue for why I believe it is Paul speaking as a justified Christian. Here are the four big reasons why I believe that. Number one, it is just the most straightforward reading of the text. He never says things like, back when I was in the flesh. Now, he has done that, right? In Romans, he did do that. He talked about back when I was an unbeliever, but here he speaks in the present tense. Wretched man that I am, he says in verses 24 and 25. He speaks of himself in the present tense. Secondly, the entire section, six, seven, eight, it's all about sanctification It's all about that that battle as a Christian, okay? And so I think that fits the context that is here. Thirdly, what is said is consistent with what other places of the Bible clearly say of the Christian. Okay, so those who say that Paul is speaking as a non-Christian they would say, well, what he says here just seems like the kind of thing that a Christian couldn't say, okay? All right, but look at like, like chapter 8, verse 10 with me. Look what he says there. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, okay, your body's dead as a justified Christian, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. In other places, we could look to say similar things as well. And fourth, notice verse 22 as an example, 722, as an example of a theme that runs through here, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Is that the heart mentality of an unbeliever? Okay, no, he said earlier, and he'll say it again in chapter eight, that the heart apart from Christ is hostile to the law of God. So for instance, in chapter eight, look at verse seven, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. What Paul says is in my inner man, I love the law of God, but in my flesh, my body's dead. I wrestle in this kind of thing, okay? And this is what, you know, chapter eight says, uh, well, chapter eight says as well, is that for the believer in the inner man, There is a love for the law of God, though there is a wrestling with deeds of the body. But in other places, what he said is that apart from Christ, there is a hostility to God in the inner man. So for all those reasons, I take it clearly that Paul is speaking of the real battle that a Christian fights throughout this life. I think the best summarization of this passage, the two verses that would be the the central idea, what everything is about, I think is 22 and 23. Look at it again with me. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law. And remember, we studied that word law uh, several weeks back and we saw that the Bible will sometimes use the word law to speak of a power, okay, an influence. So this is not a list of commands in the flesh, This is a power, a principle. I see a different principle in the members of my body. And then look at this. Waging war. Waging war. That's the central idea. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. The Christian has a war within us. In this age... The Christian has competing desires. There are competing influences. So so, so listen, you and I were once only influenced by one dominant desire, the flesh. After final redemption, we will only have one great, all consuming, passionate desire. It will be glorify God to the utmost. In all things, where the justified Christian is right now is an odd and temporary state. A war rages inside of us. The flesh versus the spirit. I don't know about you, but reading these kinds of passages have that kind of effect of going, it makes sense now. Like I understand myself now. This is God explaining reality. This is God showing you more of who you are, helping us understand the world more in this kind of way. We understand reality. So we will make our way through this along the way. There are going to be numerous truths that we bring out. Here's where we're going to start this morning. Point one of the overall outline will be this. Christian, you will not arrive in this age. You will not arrive in this age. Another way of saying this, the saying the same point, another title I could have given it would be the error of perfectionism and the arrival mentality. Throughout church history, there have been, and there still are, though they're not nearly as common as what they once were, a number of movements that teach that it is possible to come to moral perfection in this life. Or at least, you know, some of them have said things like, well, it's not absolute perfection, but it's, you know, it's essentially perfect. Um, Listen, every Christian should study church history. There's a reason why God gives us so much history in the Bible. Okay, when we don't study history, we don't understand the world. Okay, we don't know how we got here. We don't know who we are. We don't know human nature. um, And in the Bible, God gives us even some church history, like in the book of Acts. And one of the things that we see in church history is that over and over again, we'll see these errors, okay? There'll be be an influential teacher. There'll be a movement that gets started. There's an error. And the first generation who believes the error, they're not all that far from the truth. But here's what happens. Over time, errors increase. And the distance between the truth and where they end up becomes great. Errors turn into heresy over time. Errors are harmful. Heresies are damnably harmful. Errors are always going to rob you in some way of joy, of maturity. Heresy has an incredible effect of destroying and shipwrecking faiths. Okay, which is why okay every generation needs to start with Sola Scriptura. Okay, Just every generation starts with that. Every generation gets passionate about, if it's not in the Bible, it's not doctrine, we take our cues from the word. If every generation, then we would stop heresy every generation. Okay, So that's what it would take. But I digress, we come back. Let me give just like a quick five-minute little church history lesson as an illustration here. Okay, To kind of see, I want to show some of the ways that this has progressed in church history. Uh, John Wesley, um, by the way, a hero, okay? Hero of the faith, just because we notice some errors doesn't mean we despise people from history, okay? So just like the Bible gives us David, David's a hero, but does the Bible also show us some errors and call attention? Yes, we do the same thing in church history. We don't despise people we disagree with in these kinds of things here. But, But John Wesley... Um, By the way, died in 1791. So kind of keep a little bit of, you know, dates in your mind timeline there. Wesley believed and taught that perfection or, or practical perfection was possible. He was an incredibly influential leader. Um, including in the state of Indiana, a number of denominations um, and movements grew out of his ministry. The the Methodist church grew out of his. And in the early days, the Methodist church was a uh, hot gospel, zealous, passionate group. The Methodist church is the only group in history that has planted a church in every county of the United States, something just absolutely phenomenal. And it was a hot preaching gospel Bible teaching movement at the beginning. There's been quite a drift over the years, but this is one of those movements that came out. And part of that is means the influence of some of his teachings then spread highly. Another one of the movements that spread out of his ministry was called the holiness movement. Um, by the way, um, connected to some modern times, um, the the walk to Emmaus that you sometimes hear people talk about, that's a holiness movement event. The doctrine that is taught there is holiness movement. And it is interesting from its earliest days, that holiness movement preached the importance of these revivals and events and church camps and these special events. And like, you'll never reach it and without these kinds of things, something the Bible does not teach. But Wesley taught that a sinner must turn to Christ to be saved. And then here's, here's the big thing to pay attention to. And then sometime after salvation, there would come a moment that began to be labeled as second blessing. There would be some moment later when the Christian would then enter the higher life the kind of plateau where you come to this second blessing. Well, that belief was around for several generations, give it about a century for that belief to really get hot and and heavy and spread throughout. And then the modern charismatic movement actually grew out of this movement, okay? We can trace these things. Trace it back to this belief in second blessing. The modern charismatic movement comes out of this and they begin to emphasize that you must be saved. And by the way, we rejoice in that, okay? Preach the gospel, we rejoice in that. Many of these are our brothers and sisters. Just disagreeing doesn't mean we hate them. We rejoice in the gospel being preached and we need to have some humility because when we stand on the day of judgment, I have no doubt, we will have some errors pointed out as well. But out of this movement, they took this. You must be saved. And then at a later time, sometime later, that's when you would be baptized by the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Some of them taught that uh, this is when you would speak in tongues and that would be evidence that you have had your second blessing. Others taught that that's, you don't have to speak in tongues, but there would be a dramatic change filled with the spirit and you enter the higher life. Sometimes people have also called it the victorious life. Uh, The deeper life, the spirit filled life. It's this idea that there will come a moment when you arrive at maturity. So they view sanctification kind of like a hill that has a plateau and you arrive at the higher life. Uh, By the way, if I can make a parenthesis here, second blessing is not a biblical concept. Um, Over and over again, we could look at various passages. I don't have time to get into all of it today, but let me rattle off three for you to look up if you're not convinced when I say that. Look at Romans 7, 6 to say that all believers have the spirit of God at justification. First Corinthians 12, 13 shows us, speaks to the church and says, we were all baptized by one spirit, okay? Doesn't say to the church, some of y'all been baptized and some of you are waiting on your second blessing. It's not what it says. Romans 8, 9 says that anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You cannot be a justified Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. Now, some of these groups have said, okay, well, fine, you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, but we still believe in a second blessing in this higher life. You will not find it in the Bible. It is an idea that then gets eisegesist, okay? That's to push into the text, come to the Bible with an idea, and I try to fit it and elbow it and make it work so that it goes in there, okay? Rather than reading out of it what we take. All right. But some have held that perfection is possible. To hold that view, I mean, think about it. You have to have a shallow view of sin, a corrupted view of God's law, A blind and arrogant heart towards your own personal sins and grievously hold to a puny God who may be nice, but he is not holy, holy, holy. Okay, so the end of that, don't believe that. There we go. The more we study scripture, listen friends, the more we study scripture, the more we come to understand what true righteousness is the more we come to see how high it is and the more our sin is exposed to us and we see how great of a gap there is between where I am and where true righteousness is. But let's be honest, the odds of that doctrine existing in this church, probably real slim, but there's a lighter version of it. There's a lighter version of it. Just the same that you can reject the prosperity gospel but still kind of have a lighter version that if I'm a good boy, God will bless me, okay? There's a lighter version of this kind of perfectionism. It's the assumption of the heart and usually an unspoken assumption of the heart that I'm there, I made it, I'm basically there, I'm basically a professional Christian now And listen, nobody ever says that out loud or, okay, some do, we've seen that, okay? But usually, okay, in a church like this, okay, nobody's going to say that out loud, even in secret. That's not the way the heart works. The heart is so deceitful. And works in such ways that we can come to have assumptions that never get voiced. Assumptions that we're not even fully aware of. Like we're so complex creatures. We can have beliefs that's like I'm not even consciously aware I have the belief. It's tucked way down in there. And we can come to have the assumption of the heart that we've arrived. I'm now on this plateau of the higher life but look at what true maturity looks like. Chapter seven, look at verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Look at 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. You just gotta, like sometimes when you have these conversations with folks, you're like, I'm a good person. Paul wasn't nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present, there's the inner man's stuff, but the doing of the good is not. Verse 19, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. Here is a sign of true maturity. And by the way, yes, even though you will never arrive in this life, there is such a thing as maturity. The Bible does speak of those who are strong in Christ. But here is a sign of true maturity. Mature believers are deeply, deeply aware of their many indwelling sins and weaknesses. They are frustrated about it. And they are deeply humble because they see themselves as they really are. Sinner, saved by grace. And even now that I am pardoned, God still has to be really patient with me because I continue to, to quote James, stumble in many ways. Mature believers long for the day when this flesh is completely put to death. True maturity sees rightly and is therefore humble. True maturity never gives myself a complacent judgment. I think I'm doing fine. True maturity feels no smugness. And by the way, true humility, the true definition of humility is simply to just see yourself as you really are. You know, sometimes Christians get this idea that like humility is I have to call myself trash every day and hate myself. No, that's not true humility. It's simply to see ourselves as we truly are. We'll see that when we come to Romans 12, 3. It's not hating yourself. It's seeing the truth about who you are. And by the way, it is not arrogant to recognize when some things are going well and there are some victories, okay? Sometimes when Christians get this idea that humility is I have to hate myself, they get confused by Paul. Because Paul, even though he says this, he has other places where he talks about how hard he worked in the gospel. And they're like, uh, is Paul sinning here? No, it's not a sin to recognize when some things are going well and to humbly rejoice in those things. What is sin? is to think that the good I'm doing is better than it is, and then to feel smug about what is going well and to feel exalted over others. And this arrival attitude, this I've arrived attitude, it's spiritual pride. Uh, Jump with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter three for a moment. Show just one other place where I think Paul makes it even clearer in that passage. Uh, Philippians three, start in verse 12. I'll read it there quickly. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Stop there for just a second. What does Paul say? Like I, it, It's hard for me to comprehend how you can come to a view of perfectionism with Paul saying something like this, repeating himself. I'm not there. I, I, ca- I cannot regard myself as perfect as having laid hold of it, yet I'm not done. So here's what I do. I press, I fight, I struggle, I battle, I forget the stuff of the past, both my sins and my accomplishments, and I fight to keep pressing forward. Now to show you something else to connect it to Romans and you know, maybe confuse, if the first time you read it, look at verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, what? Paul, didn't you just say, I've not arrived at perfection? And now he says, let us who are perfect have this attitude. What does he mean by that? Same thing the Holy Spirit teaches in the book of Romans. That legally before God, we are counted as righteous. In the eyes of God, we have been counted as if we are perfect. Though practically in my conduct, my obedience, my thoughts, my attitudes, my intentions, I am not there yet. I've not reached the peak of the mountain of righteousness. So what do we do? Keep climbing the mountain. Because the moment that you tell yourself, I've arrived, what happens? You stop climbing and this is a mountain covered in ice. And you begin to slip downhill rapidly. We have to have the right metaphors for our sanctification. We've said that all the way through as we've looked at it. We have to have the right metaphors. Second blessing has the metaphor of sanctification that it's like a hill with a plateau and there'll come the day that there's an easier walking in the higher life when I'm mature. That's not reality. Sanctification is like Mount Everest. 29,000 feet, it's not a hill. When you turn to Christ and you are justified, you are counted as righteous. But where we practically are, He's way, way down, tens of thousands of feet below the peak and it's snowing blizzards and it's 2020. So there's murder hornets and we're fighting to get up this hill. We're fighting in tough conditions to climb higher. But listen, Christian, every inch matters. Every inch It's not just the bigger victories of leaps and bounds every inch. And in fact, most days, most days, that's what it is. Most days, it's I read the word. I don't feel like my life totally changed by reading the word. But you fight for every inch and every inch glorifies our father. Every inch brings the angels to rejoice every inch Jesus said, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. So Christian, we fight for every inch. The, a warning that I give to you in all of this is, is this. The moment that you sense in your heart that smug feeling of arrival, at that moment, pinch yourself make red flags, warning sirens go off inside of you because at that moment you are in grave danger. You are in grave danger. Pride comes before the fall and this is a moment of spiritual pride. But with that, I would guess, I can't point to a verse of the Bible that would say every Christian is going to struggle with this. I would guess every Christian is going to have some point where that feeling sets in. I hope I'm not alone in this. Having had numerous times that that smugness came over me, I think I'm doing pretty good now. And then splat on your face, it's a dangerous place to be when we feel i am arrived, I'm there, I'm basically a professional Christian now. Spiritual pride destroys. Now, let me give one more word here as well. Beware of another danger. So we have warned of this danger, let me warn one more danger. Some Christians have the air of thinking that we're gonna arrive at this higher life and it's gonna get easy. Others, and this can happen in the more reformed world, There's a movement within the reformed world who know total depravity well. The error of thinking, we're all rotten, so what's it matter? I'm waiting for redemption. We're sinners till we get there. So let's eat, drink, and be merry. By the way, pretty close to the Corinthian debacle that Paul addresses to that church. That error fails to understand what we are called to when we are called to fight for every inch. And yes, every inch has reward. Every inch. Sometimes, you know it, we feel those little, little, I'll use quotation marks, it's bigger than what we realize, a little moment. Do I turn off this movie? I mean, that's so small. Fight for every inch. This is how we make progress, every one of them. Christian, we live in an odd time in eternity. We will one day be free of this flesh and have no more sin desire. But in this age, in this age, we are glorifying God in a unique way. And I want you to think about this part. We are showing the angels the glory of the gospel. We are showing the angels the glory of salvation. Just how powerful is the salvation that God is working in us? Powerful enough that we are fighting to overcome our very nature. It's like a fish wanting to live out of water. Sin nature has ruled us and dominated us before we came to Christ. Even in Christ, it's still beating and influencing us. And yet the gospel brings us, I want to leave my nature. Will you glorify God by groaning? You glorify God by lamenting by groaning for your redemption, by longing for the day when sin no longer riddles your body. Imagine what the angels and the demons see in the justified Christian who has a nature in in, inclining us to sin, but we hate that nature and we're fighting for godliness even though there's a weight dragging us towards sin. We are showing the power and the glory of salvation. Keep fighting. Keep groaning, keep making progress. And to you who are not in Christ, to you who are not saved and so are not yet in this process, just very briefly and quickly, I say to you, come to Jesus, come to Christ, receive him. Come and find your safety in him. Eternal life is found nowhere else receive Christ as Lord, Savior, Messiah sent from God. And if you want help with that, come find me after the service and I'll talk with you. Let's pray. Merciful God, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for the gospel. And thank you for this work of sanctification. Thank you for your words showing us where we are. Thank you for the work you're doing day by day. And I pray, God, we will groan. I pray, God, we will not be complacent in our sin. I pray, God, that we will not come to spiritual pride in thinking we're better than we are. Bring us to see it. Bring us to lament. And bring us to make progress. Please give us your blessing as we leave. We pray all these things through Christ. Amen. God bless you.
0: Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.